This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Where my people come from, after a week like this, they would say, ooh-wee. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, see, my, my people come from Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama. But in the news world, when you cover justice, homeland security, a little politics, you say, ooh, we, what a week. Okay, the week started off with a bang. Federal agents searching Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago, unprecedented. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Since I became Attorney General, I have made clear that the Department of Justice will speak through its court filings and its work. The Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. That search was of premises located in Florida belonging to the former president. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. I personally approve the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News, joins us now from Florida. Major, thanks for making the time. I know there's a lot going on around you. No doubt. Good to be with you. All right. So what is the latest? This is, well, to be honest, everything around the former president, quite frankly, is a saga. But there is a flurry of activity this week in Mar-a-Lago. Where do you think things stand now as we uh, wrap up the week? So it's a week unlike any in American history. Never before has the FBI executed a search warrant or authorized by a judge who has reviewed the evidence on a former U.S. president's residence. Never happened. That in itself makes this a volcanic event in presidential history, the history of the American justice system, and the application of our laws. And something that we as Americans say to each other all the time, but sometimes wonder about is anyone above the law. It's a credo that we have in our country that no one is above the law, not even a president or former president. And that's being put to a very real test before our eyes. What this is about, at least as much as we have been able to piece together so far, is a disagreement over former President Trump's handling of presidential documents, some of them classified, in Mar-a-Lago, 
is Florida residents. There had been negotiations. Representatives of the Justice Department at a very high level went to Mar-a-Lago as recently as June, had conversations about these records, how they're being maintained, and how they can be returned to the satisfaction not only of the National Archives, but consistent with the Presidential Records Act. Clearly, those negotiations, which Trump attorneys have suggested were going along amicably, were not in the eyes of the Justice Department. And there had to be a FBI intervention to secure said documents and get them back to their legal proper place, which precipitated the execution of a search warrant. I think it can be fairly described as a raid. It went into Mar-a-Lago, three particular offices or rooms, the former president's bedroom, his office that he works from when at Mar-a-Lago, and a storage room. And attorneys with the former president have told us, as you might expect, the conduct of the FBI agents was terse but professional. And documents were taken. And there has been, as is required by law, a sort of receipt. It's called a return, a document summarizing what was taken. But those we have spoken to have left us with the impression that that document is somewhat vague, doesn't offer a lot of specifics. Is this about something more than compliance by a former president with the Presidential Records Act? Lots of people are wondering about that. We don't know for sure, but lots of legal experts who have much more experience in federal prosecutions than I have have said this simply can't be only and exclusively about the handling of presidential records, even if some of them are classified. Something else must be going on. There must be a larger vein of inquiry to justify this thing that we have never seen before in our country's history. Well, I, you know, I wonder, Major, what kind of classified information are we talking about here? That's, to me, that's the question. Could it be communications with former leaders, which is extremely important, especially as it relates to China and Russia, especially? You know, could it be something like that? Could it, could it be some sort of informal notes uh, to people within the Saudi government or the Russian government or the Chinese? or some other things that have a particular character to them about actions taken while President Trump was still in the Oval Office. We just don't know. But again, there are outside experts who have handled cases like this, and there haven't been that many in our history, just for a very, very quick summary. Couple of names, if you've been following politics closely over the last 20 or 30 years, might resonate. Sandy Berger was the National Security Advisor to President Clinton. He fell afoul of the Presidential Records Act, took some classified information in a somewhat uh, inexpert and ham-handed way, got afoul of this law. David Petraeus also did when uh, he was uh, as director of the CIA. So it has happened, never to a former president, and these prosecutions and investigations are rare. And prosecutions are infrequent. But, and this is the sort of the underscores the point 
that brings us back to Mar-a-Lago and many, many Trump supporters I saw on the causeway that leads to Mar-a-Lago protesting this FBI action. If there were to be, and we're many steps away from this, but just play it out in your mind, if there were to be an indictment and a prosecution of a violation of the Presidential Records Act and President Trump were to be found guilty, he would be barred from seeking federal office for the remainder of his life. The political implications of that are vast. And people who support former President Trump, who I talked to, believe that's what this is about, nullifying his potential candidacy in 2024 and nothing else. They see it in archly political terms, and they consider it, these are their words, not mine, something akin to an affront on American justice. All right. Can I just can I just respond to that? Sure. Yeah. Whoever is saying that, it's like they have blinders on. This is perhaps the least consequential legal action this former president is currently facing. He's got that nightmare case building in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, remember when he called the Secretary of State of Georgia and said, hey, can you just find me some more votes? Okay, so he's got that. And then he's got accusations that he led really what amounts to a coup attempt. So he's got that working too. And then he's got these tax issues around his business where he pleaded the, the fifth, according to the AG of New York, about 400 times. So this, this records thing, this is like, if I were him, man, I'd pu be pulling out whatever hair I have left because he's any normal human being could not survive this much legal scrutiny, Major. And so anybody who says, oh, this is all about preventing him from running for president, that may be true, but this isn't the case to do it. And it may be the cleanest of all the cases, meaning these are documents. They are not where they should be. We have confirmed they're in your presence. This is not compliant with the law. That's basically what you need to bring an indictment and bring a prosecution. Here are the boxes. They are not where they should be. This is not in compliance, and everyone admits it, and everyone acknowledges it. And you could say, well, it's a misunderstanding, but if the Justice Department doesn't believe it's a misunderstanding and has evidence to point to something far beyond a misunderstanding, that's a pretty clear-cut case. The law is clear. It's not ambiguous. And all former presidents have staff and abilities and capabilities that they are learned and instructed about as president to do this properly. It's not as if there's some owner's manual to this that former President Trump never got. Everyone gets it, okay? Compliance with this is not optional, and it's very clear cut how to do it. So this may be the cleanest evidentiary case and the one simplest to present to a jury, and that may be on the minds of the Justice Department. Whatever it is, it's a tectonic event in legal and political history in this country. Uh, that's a good point. That is a good point. You know what? The Republicans are using this raid, search, whatever you want to call it. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is calling on his Republican colleagues to speak out against the current abuse of power in, in the government. That's what he says. If you are an elected Republican, he says, and you are staying quiet while Democrats in Washington are abusing their power, you are the very reason they think they can get away with it. That's what he said. That's what 
McCarthy wrote in a Facebook post. He said, now is the time to speak up and be loud. So they're fundraising off of this. They kind of like this attention. Very much so. And when you talk, as I have, to Trump advisors, they say it has been a huge political elixir for him this week, that his base of support, which very much wants him to run in 2024, but was sort of growing tired, as these Trump advisors tell me, of his obsessive and completely groundless accusations and slanders against the 2020 election. Everyone in the Trump inner circle knows he didn't win, that it wasn't stolen. Whether he knows that or not is material, but not relevant, because he won't get off the idea that somehow this was stolen, even though everyone around him knows, and as the January 6th hearings have vividly portrayed those on his legal team, those on his campaign, those everywhere around him in the final days of his presidency knew he did not win the election and it was not stolen from him. But his base is getting fatigued by that. They would like him to focus much more on President Biden, what they consider to be wrongheaded decisions and a bad agenda and bad outcomes. And they were sort of getting fatigued and a little less energized. This has brought them back kind of ferociously back, as Trump advisors say. And Republicans, and this is a way to sort of verify what the Trump world is saying, are jumping into that as almost as if the president is a ringleader and he is snapping a rhetorical whip and saying, come to my defense. And what are Republicans doing? They're doing precisely that. And as you said, raising money off of it and trying to put this political cast around what the Justice Department would like the country to believe is a standard law enforcement operation. Evidence gathered, presented, reviewed by a judge, and a warrant approved. That very well may, very well may be exactly how it proceeded, and we have no reason to believe otherwise. But the simple truth is, this is not an ordinary execution of an ordinary search warrant, not where the former president is involved, any former president, and most particularly when that former president is named Donald Trump. Another Good point, Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. Let's focus on what's happening in New York. New York Attorney General Letitia James, I've known her for a long time, having worked in New York City, but she's taking on the former president, who invoked his Fifth Amendment rights during a deposition midweek, Wednesday, hump day. So Trump was called to her office to testify in connection with an investigation into the Trump organization. All right. So he took the fifth. I mean, isn't he the one who said anybody who takes the fifth? And at the time he was speaking uh, in relation to the Clinton email investigation. But didn't he say that if you take the fifth, you're guilty? mobsters take the didn't he say something like that he did he did you can look it up folks don't believe jeff pegues don't believe major garrett go to your own machine however you search and find it it's easy to find it's being searched right now so it's right near the top of the list you can find it easily you can do your own investigation on this former president trump said that and he meant it it's not true necessarily but he said it and now he invoked it which is within his rights, of course, but this is a painstaking, long-running 
investigation into whether or not the Trump organization, with intent, told one thing about its financial records to one entity, told something else to another entity about the exact same set of facts, and with those different stories, depending on the circumstance and the jurisdiction and the year, either obtained loans or obtained tax breaks fraudulently. That's the essence of it. Hard to prove, painstaking, financial records. You have to look and review. You have to understand what the motive was, what the intent was. But this is ongoing, and it is a very real deal. And you know it's a very real deal because family members of the Trump family were deposed. Then the former president was deposed. And top representatives of the Trump organization not in the family also have been deposed. And that is one of many, as you said at the top, Jeff, I don't want to describe them as legal missiles, but they are legal matters that are getting closer and closer and closer to the former president. This major, as you know, has been one of those weeks where reporters like us spend a lot of our time on the phone, trying to confirm information, trying to get the facts. So it's just been, it's been a really, really busy week. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, very, very busy week. <laughs> yeah, people think, you know, they see you down in Mar-a-Lago, they think like you're playing golf and, or what do they play down there? Bulls or, or polo, polo, polo. That's Palm Beach. Not, no, no, no. You're not playing Polo. No, uh, no, no, no. Not playing polo, not playing golf. Uh, would love to play golf in Florida. I've heard it's very nice, but no. Um, planes and phone calls and uh, trying to meet with people and trying to learn as much as you can and stitch as much of the story together and be as absolutely accurate and non-speculative as possible. Look, uh, whenever there is a federal investigation or even a state investigation and the political figure is involved, there's lots of smoke. There may not be fire. There's always political implications to it. And journalists have an overwhelming responsibility not to speculate and to keep things as factually centered as possible. And you get pieces of information in shreds, but you need to double and triple source it. And if you can't, you don't report it because it may impact and affect the way the public hears about a case. And it's a very sensitive area, not just for investigators, but for journalists who are trying to understand what happened. You've been doing this work for a long time. I've been doing this work for a long time. It takes a big team. We have a lot of great reporters at CBS all pitching in on this one, but it's been a very busy week. Yeah. And the, the team here at CBS News, I'm proud to say, is humming. Uh, and I'd be remiss, Major, if I didn't give you the minute that we have left to relax your mind a little. This is like mindfulness. Just relax, just relax and, and think about your San Diego Padres. Yeah. Yeah. The Padres Juan Soto in Padre pinstripes. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think? They're, they're taking on the nationals in Washington, D.C. So when you get back from Florida, you can settle into your chair at the ballpark and just chill. 
You've earned it. Yes, I have. And I'm a long-suffering Padre fan. Everyone who is a Padre fan is long-suffering. I often call it the longest-running abusive relationship I've ever had in my life. It started at age seven in 1969 when the Padres entered the National League. Uh, love my Padres. Uh, I would say there have been ups and downs, but as anyone who knows anything about baseball knows, far more downs than ups. But uh, we're on a very good trajectory. We made some enormously important acquisitions at the trade deadline. The team is beginning to gel before our eyes, and I think we'll make some noise in the playoffs. I certainly hope so. All right. I got my fingers crossed for you, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on America Change Forever. The show is better with you contributing. Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Here we go. There's another front in these political battles between red and blue. And you might be surprised to find out that it's, um, or maybe you won't. I don't know. Maybe you won't. It's hospital systems. That's right. Coming out of this pandemic. Although, I don't know. We're still not. I don't know if we can officially say that we're out of the pandemic. But anyway, that's another segment altogether. But coming coming out of the political battles over the coronavirus and the vaccines, whether the vaccine works, whether it doesn't work, whether you should use some other, I don't know, form of treatment. Well, now, according to the Washington Post, there is this struggle for control of one of Florida's largest public health systems. And it's just an article that caught my eye. So we have the person who wrote it with us now, Tim Craig, who's a national correspondent based in Florida for the Washington Post. Tim, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you very much. All right. So tell us what is happening right now in Sarasota, Florida. In the Memorial Hospital there, there is this battle for control of the board. Tell us about it. Yeah. In in many places, these boards are not elected. But in Florida, public hospitals can have elected boards. So voters go to vote for the board members of the, the, the hospital the same way they go vote for county supervisor or county judge in some instances. So in Sarasota, Florida, you know, it's a it's a pretty wealthy part of the state. Uh, just south of Tampa, and there's a lot of older retirees there. And for a long time, the the public hospital has sort of been the pride of the community. You know, it's very well respected, and it serves a lot of the, the residents in the area. Well, a, a couple of months ago, as sort of the after that, there's been a very tumultuous time in Sarasota with battles over COVID vaccine policies, school mask mandates, and it really has defined sort of the broader division in the country over many of these issues. So a, a few months ago, a group of conservatives, uh, pretty far right conservatives, they actually some of them actually call themselves constitutionalist conservatives, got together and they decided to embrace a slate of candidates, four candidates to run in this, uh, this election, which will be held in late August, to try to win seats on the hospital board. Now, all these Republican candidates running um, are or at least three of them are very have publicly been stated their uh, skepticism of the COVID vaccine mandate and the, and the vaccines in general. 
And they, they seem to be running on a platform they call medical freedom, uh, which sort of encompasses the broader sort of struggle that we've seen over the last two years as it relates to COVID, where some, especially conservatives, believe the government should not be mandating vaccines, the government should not be mandating masks. And in some, case, some cases, they're even quite skeptical of the treatments being used to treat people for, with COVID. Tell me about Victor. Is it Rowey? He's running for this board. He is one of those that you describe who, who calls himself a, a strict constitutionalist. Tell us about his story. Well, his story is he's a, uh, you know, he's a local Republican official in that county. And he actually had COVID last uh, summer. He had COVID. And he did not trust the doctors at Sarasota Memorial Hospital to treat him because there's a lot of there were a lot of rumors and conspiracy theories about the care that COVID patients were getting inside the hospital. So he had COVID. He, it was a pretty bad case. His blood levels, his blood oxygen levels had dropped enough where he said he should have gone to the hospital. Instead, he went and rented his own oxygen machine, hooked it up in his house, and he basically relied on family and friends to help, you know, treat him and guide him through the, his COVID infection, which was uh, pretty serious, it sounds like. Um, but that just shows you the level of mistrust that some elements of, especially the Republican Party at this stage, have towards sort of the medical establishment community. Now, Victor is one of the candidates running for a seat on the hospital board with hopes of making policy in the future for the entire hospital. And he is quoted in your report saying, quote, if I went to the hospital, I believed I would die. So what is he running so that other people can, you know, rent an oxygen machine and have their family members help them survive the coronavirus? No, well, he says he's running. So other conservatives uh, in Southwest Florida feel they don't need to do that, that they will feel comfortable going to the hospital. And, you know, he claims that once the, they, they'll have a broader array of options to receive treatment and make them more comfortable with the medical system. Like, you know, his argument is, is, is in essence that through things like vaccine mandates and the COVID vaccine and other mandates on, uh, residents and citizens, that people are now shying away from all medical care because they don't want to go to the hospital and sort of be bombarded with, you know, uh, mandates or things that they should be doing. Uh, he, he believes that this medical system has become too stilted and too bureaucratic and too formulaic. And he argues that what's really needed is more, you know, a variety of options and medicines and treatment plans to treat people. Most medical experts will say that's a very dangerous thing, you know, because science is science, medicine is medicine for a reason, and formulas and treatment plans are there for a reason. But he argues people need more choices in the sort of types of medical care they receive. All right. And there, as you said, there is a slate of conservative candidates. Another candidate, Joseph Chirillo who is a retired physician, he wrote in a social media post, quote, all four of us who are running are, in his words, devoted Christians, conservatives, and patriots who deserve to make the Sarasota Memorial Hospital system stronger, more accountable, with greater transparency. 
All right. So statements like this must be <laughs> rattling Democrats in Sarasota. Sarasota. I mean, I know it's a overwhelmingly red area, but even doctors, nurses, they must be concerned about what they're hearing. Well, yeah, I think it has rattled a lot of people in the community. And it's not just Democrats. You know, all these candidates are actually running against several incumbents who are Republicans. They are actually moderate Republicans. You know, Sarasota's kind of always been more geared towards the business moderate wing of the Republican Party. This now challenge comes from the, the, the more conservative, farther right wing of the party, which is trying to gain influence. And I think there is broad concern, like, you know, of all things that some people argue should not be politicized or should not be up for partisan you know, debate is what kind of care and what kind of management, and what kind of oversight you get of your local hospital. Um, so I, I, it has sort of opened up a big fissure in the community that is sort of dividing, not just right from left, but it's also causing divisions within the Republican Party. Um, at the end of the day, I tend to think that there will be a, that the candidates will not be successful in this case. But this is just one, you know, example of this. I think increasingly uh, across the country, in both elections like this, but also in other situations as it relates to appointed health care systems and appointed health care boards, partisanship and you know. Other political sort of divisions are going to emerge, especially as it relates to things like abortion care, abortion access, vaccines, uh, how the GLBT community receives health care and what sort of health care it receives. So I think this is just the opening salvo of what's going to be a very, you know, contentious battle moving forward as an outgrowth of what happened to the country and sort of the country's uh, division during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I think... <laughs> You know, Tim, what what caught my eye is, you know, I hadn't heard about this kind of conflict um, before, uh, you know, in a hospital system. You know, I mean, we've we've seen these kinds of conflicts, similar conflicts around school boards and what kids are reading. But this seems to me like a, a new front. And you've, you've sort of alluded to that. Is that what caught your eye when you uh, first got wind of this uh, conflict on this hospital board? Well, it is sort of a new front. But a lot of this stuff has been simmering under the surface, both in Sarasota and other places. I mean, even during the pandemic, there were some protests outside of hospitals. You know, there was conspiracy theory spread mostly on the right, but also not just on the right. So, you know, there were conspiracy theories spread about, you know, hospitals inflating their COVID numbers and that they're admitting people who don't really have COVID. And then, of course, the vaccines don't work. Why are the doctors trying to push vaccines on us? Masks don't work. Why, why are doctors and nurses trying to put masks on us? And, you know, and also, you know, even President Trump at times was advocating for certain medicines that weren't necessarily, you know, approved to treat COVID by the FDA at the time, or even later. And that became, you know, a lot of conservatives felt that they should have had access to those medicines, even if they weren't completely tested and available, you know, to the broader public at the time. So a lot of this stuff has been simmering under the surface, and it just highlights how in this day and age, you know, to some extent, almost anything can be sort of delved into partisan politics. And it's sort of where the, I, I fear, where the country's headed, that, you know, it doesn't take a lot for a, even a sort of innocuous, previously innocuous issue to become divided along partisan or um, polarized terms. 
All right. What's your follow-up story going to be? Well, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. Like this election is held um, August 23rd. It's in uh, Sarasota County. Um, and it's, it's part of a broader array of elections that are taking place in Florida and around the country about school board races are very hot this year. You know, this hospital board races. And I think we're going to have to wait and see how this all turns out. But the broader issue is COVID is not COVID may be sort of waning in terms of the public um, consciousness. I feel like, you know, as the pandemic wanes and more people are vaccinated, fewer people are ending up in the hospital. But it's still very much a, a cloud in a sort of a, a um, tenet of our political system. And it may be for quite some time going forward. Tim Craig, national correspondent for The Washington Post based in Florida. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Jeff Asher, who is a crime analyst, joins us now. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So what do the numbers show, the numbers that you see? So it's really difficult to evaluate what murder looks like year to year, month to month. The FBI is very slow at releasing data. Uh, We have created a dashboard of, I believe we have 90 cities right now, 91 cities that have available data. Almost all of them should be through May, June timeframe. Um, And so those 91 cities show, they compare this year to date to last year to date, and it's apples to apples. So city has data through August 1st. It's comparing August 1st this year to August 1st last year. So we have murder down about 3.9% this year as of our update from this morning uh, relative to last year. Big cities tend to overstate the national trends. So if murder is up 30% in big cities, it would be expected to be up somewhere in the 25 to 27% range nationally. Uh, Similarly, if murder's down 10% in big cities, we would expect it to be down about 5 to 7% nationally. So it suggests a a slight drop relative to last year so far. But you have to remember, we had a 29.5% increase in 2020 from 2019. And we still don't have the formal 2021 murder estimate but the big city data showed an up increase of about 6%. So we're still up 40 or 30 something percent or so relative to where we were in 2019, um, down a little bit from 2021, probably still up from where we were in 2020 nationally. All right. So what do you see positives in those numbers or is it too early to tell? Well, considering 2020 was the largest one-year increase in murder that we've ever recorded nationally, both in terms of the number of increase and the the rate and the percentage of increase. Uh, The fact that we're not seeing another increase, it's a positive. It's not, obviously, you'd want a big decline, um, but a small decline where, you know, 2020, almost every city saw an increase. 2021, most of the big cities saw an increase. This year, it's really only a handful. Only 36% of the cities in our sample are up, showing that it, most cities are not seeing murder increasing again. And it's not, again, like I said, the, the greatest positive. It's not exactly what you'd, you'd hope for, but it's better than the opposite. And there hasn't been a lot of positive news in terms of people that track murder trends year to year. So we'll, I guess, take this. 
Could could it have anything to do with people getting back to a more normalized routine? You know, we're sort of coming out of the, the pandemic, although the pandemic in a lot of ways continues. But are, are people getting back to a normal schedule? Are court systems getting back to a normal schedule? Are police tactics working? Well, we don't really have data to be able to say with any confidence what is causing it. And considering that we're not talking about a dramatic decline, I don't know that there's ever going to be something that you can say, oh, it was X or it was Y. Uh, there's, at least from the the very small level, you know, life in America is getting back to somewhat what it was like before the coronavirus. So we are seeing increasing court cases happening. We're seeing increasing trials, jury trials, all of these things help to get the wheels of justice turning, I guess you could say. But there's not really any strong evidence that says this is something that is needed for murder reduction necessarily. You know, there's there's lots of other reasons that we would want our criminal justice system to be operating and not to be backlogged so significantly as it's been for nearly two years. I don't know that it's necessarily a, a murder-related thing. Jeff Asher, crime analyst. Thanks for your time. Rick Rosenfeld is a criminologist and founders professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Rick, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate your time. Tell me, what are you seeing across the country? Because you have said that there is reason for optimism. Where do you see it? Well, optimistic that the big rise in homicide that we saw a couple of years ago uh, uh, has slowed and now perhaps is reversing. That's the optimism. The heavily guarded part is that, um, uh, you know, we can't foresee the emergence or reemergence of the conditions that generated the increase in the first place. Another George Floyd type incident of police violence that goes viral and sparks widespread social protests could contribute to a new increase in, in violent crime. Um, you know, I don't expect this, but to the degree that places begin to return to the kinds of lockdowns and so forth that were used uh, at the beginning of the pandemic uh, and the stresses and dislocations that they caused, that could contribute to an increase. So there are some unknowns here. But based on what we've seen recently, that's the basis for my guarded optimism. You know, if you look at public opinion polls, People are concerned about this rising crime that they've been seeing in cities and towns across America. What are the numbers saying now? Okay, well, um, uh, I have produced uh, with colleagues a series of reports on recent crime trends for the Council on Criminal Justice. Our most recent report uh, covers the period, the beginning of 2018 through the end of June of this year, 2022. We look at 10 different crime types from homicide through uh, robberies, burglaries, larcenies, and drug offenses. And here's what we've found in our most recent report. 
As I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, uh, homicide rates in the United States and the big cities in particular went way up in 2020. Nationwide, they increased by about 30% over the previous year. In the following year, 2021, homicide rates continue to increase on average, in some places more than others, uh, but the increase was beginning to slow. In 2021, homicide counts were 5% above what they were the previous year, 2020. During the first six months of this year, through the end of June, we found that homicide rates dipped slightly in our sample of big cities. Uh, they were down 2 to 3% over the first six months of last year. So on the, that's the picture with respect to the most serious violent crime. Big increase in homicide in 20, smaller increase in 21. And it looks like now uh, flattening and even some decline. We'll have to wait and see what happens by the end of this year. But through the middle of the year, homicides down a bit on average. The opposite story uh, applies to the property crimes, but also the violent crime of robbery. They were coming down during the height of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of larcenies, for example, involve shoplifting. When the shops are closed, there's no shoplifting. When more people are at home because they're not at work, uh, burglaries tend to go down because burglars tend to avoid occupied households. So we saw a drop in robbery and the property crimes uh, during uh, the height of the pandemic in 20 and into 21. But by the end of last year, we began to see larcenies and robberies and burglaries begin to come back up. And during the first six months of this year, we recorded uh, quite substantial rises in uh, certainly in burglaries, but in particular in robberies and larcenies. Uh, robberies were up about 20% over the same period last year, as were larcenies. All right, Rick, so could you break down what is the difference for our listeners between robberies and larcenies? Could you just break that down for us? Now, larcenies, a robbery is an attempt to obtain something of value from someone uh, through the use or threat of force. A larceny is theft that is not accompanied by force or like burglary uh, accompanied by breaking and entering. Shoplifting is a good example. Uh, and so we see big rises in those types of crimes right now. All right. So I have a question. Why do you think, based on what you're seeing, why are robberies and larcenies up where you're seeing declines in other areas? Good question. Uh, I think there are two, in my view, two major reasons uh, why we're seeing upticks over the last six months compared to the year before. One is that conditions, day-to-day -day living conditions, have returned to something like normal, pre-pandemic uh, normal with exceptions compared with last year. And so as life becomes pretty much like it was prior to the pandemic, we should expect crime rates, uh, those crimes in particular, to follow suit. Uh, so when more shops are open, you're going to get more shoplifting. With more people on the street, there are more targets for street robbers. 
Um, so that's one reason. The other reason, though, uh, and uh, I think this is quite compelling, is we began to see increases in these crime crimes as we were seeing inflation accelerate. And as all your listeners know, inflation has accelerated greatly over the last six months. And so have the crimes that I think are most responsive to changes in prices. Uh, as prices go up, people tend to search out cheaper goods. One cardinal quality of a stolen good is that uh, it, it tends to be cheaper to purchase for the consumer than the same good would uh, through a legitimate source. Uh, and so as demand for cheaper goods goes up, then the uh, folks who supply the stolen goods, uh, they have increased incentives and we get increases in robbery, we get increases in larceny and also in burglaries. So uh, those are the major reasons, I think, why we're seeing an uptick now in uh, the property crimes and robbery. I, I am raising my hand. I'm like one of those kids in class who's just, uh, 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 professor, I have a question. I have another question. Okay. Um, so here's my question. <laughs> so he just walked into my studio. Um, so anyway, here back to the, here's my question. How do you gather your data? I mean, are you just looking at crime stats from across the country? Is this FBI data that's still being gathered? Where does the data that you're looking at come from? Uh, no, it's not uh, FBI data. Uh, the FBI does compile the nation's crime statistics from local police departments, uh, but those data don't come out uh, in a very timely way. And we were interested in knowing what was happening happening to crime rates more or less real time, especially as the pandemic was upon us. So like the FBI, we go directly to local police departments to obtain the data that we use. Uh, that's the only place you can go for these data. And uh, we go to department website. Uh, and uh, compile the data from incident reports for those 10 crime types that we look at. Uh, we clean the data. We try to remove errors as we spot them. We update the data to the degree that we can, and those data then go into the reports that we publish. So the data are from local police departments. All right. So that is good to know. And I, I got to say, this is, this is fascinating. I... You know, I, I appreciate your work as someone who covers law, law enforcement a great deal. Um, the way you are presenting these numbers, the reasons behind decreases or increases, you make it easy to understand. It makes sense. That said, should we should we be padding police? on their backs, law enforcement is, does this suggest that they're, the tactics that they are now using are effective? I, I think it may. <laughs> we haven't had the research that would really nail that one down. It is true that especially in the big city police departments over the last now decade or more, they have been to a greater or lesser extent 
applying strategies that are effective in reducing crime. Uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard the term hotspots, and these are the so-called hotspot strategies that uh, increase police presence in those areas, often quite small areas of a city, where crime tends to be heavily concentrated. So um, the uh, strategies the police have been using can be effective. What we recommend is that the police double down on those strategies, especially during an increase in, in violent crime, uh, but not to the exclusion of other strategies that don't directly involve law enforcement, community-based strategies, one of which I think is quite effective, is visiting gunshot victims at the hospital and providing, uh, interviewing them, uh, providing social services and supports as needed. Those efforts have been shown to reduce repeat uh, uh uh, gun assaults, you know, retaliatory assaults. So there's plenty of room for community groups and organizations, social service agencies to join with law enforcement uh, to curb this rise in violence we've experienced over the last few years. Uh, so I, I don't want to move too far away from your question. Are the declines we've seen uh, attributable to what law enforcement has been doing? To some degree, I think, yes, we just simply don't know how much of, of the decline is related to better law enforcement, how much is related to uh, a kind of coming out of uh, the height of the pandemic or other factors. Rick Rosenfeld, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Don't forget, for now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.